All right. Let's go ahead and open with a word of prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for this night that we have together, Lord, this opportunity to get into your word, to see what you have for us in it. And I pray, Lord, that you speak to us through it. And Lord, we, we trust you for all of this in your name. Amen. 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 All right. So we began the Sermon on the Mount, the mountainside of Galilee there, and we set aside a portion for our consideration and and we're going to complete it. I feel good about this and saying that in confidence. And we're going to be able to get through all of it. And we began with the first few Beatitudes, these nine blessings. And we saw that they're building on one another, essentially telling the story of our salvation. But this week, the story is going to get a little bit deeper. And we're going to see it essentially as the story of now our ongoing sanctification, the work that God is doing in us, each and every one of us individually as we grow in him. Um, so we saw the first, and then the, and the, um, so the, the first beatitude, and he comes in and saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And Christ first holds the law up to us, and it is a mirror to us, pointing out our poverty. And we said, uh, you know, essentially last week, pulling out our pockets and showing us what we have. And it's not much. And for some of us, maybe it's nothing at all. And as we see that, we move on to the second where he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. And you see, it's not just to, to, to point at us or poke fun at us to say, well, look at you, you're impoverished. It's, it's to say that there's a blessing at the end of it and you'll be comforted as a result of it. So if you'd come to me and you'd mourn and lament your sad, sinful state before me, uh, I will not leave you there as an orphan lost in a world of sin and filth. I'll come to you, rescue you. I will comfort you. Be blessed. It's a promise made by the one who keeps his promises. Then in verse 5, he goes on to say, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And so now you've recognized your poverty. You've confessed it publicly. You've been comforted by the Savior, brought into this relationship with him. And now he begins to break you and train you, to reform you and make you. And, and we talked about how that's the essential meaning of this word meek and is used uh, in, in, the, in the first century Greek. And the, the phrase would be usus loquendi. That was the way it was used at the time uh, to speak of a stallion that had been broken and trained. So now it's useful for a purpose. And so now this is you, and, and, and you, you've got purpose built into you. You're being trained for this great good that's set before you that, that's at the, the will of the trainer, you know, to use you. And it's, and, and it's interesting at this point that it switches from a salvation story to this sanctification story. But at this, at this point in the Beatitudes, you begin to see that as God's refining you, he's only going to take you as deep as you allow him to. He's not going to force sanctification upon you. And, and, and at this point, you're, you're well saved. But the question becomes, are you well sanctified? And if a bit of sanctification is, is good for you, then a bit of sanctification will be the story of you. And it's only to the, the degree that you hunger and thirst for righteousness that you will be filled and you'll be useful to him. And this is the next beatitude that we have before us. And he said, you'll be blessed if you hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then that deep 
appetite to come before him and not just nibble of him uh, is, is, is going to develop this great Christianity in you. And you would look upon someone, you would say, well, I want what they have. Well, it just doesn't come by osmosis and revelation in your sleep. It's going to come through a hunger and thirst. It's going to come through a great appetite in him that isn't being satisfied elsewhere in the world, that you're sitting at the feet of your Savior, eating and and drinking and supping with him to receive that which can only come from him. But now we turn our attention to the next step on this uh, essential ladder of Christianity. And it said, blessed, in verse 7, are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. Now you're to be, you are to show mercy because you've been shown mercy. And I'll tell you, you were shown mercy when you were God's enemy. You were no prize to behold when God was merciful to you. You're not somebody that deserved mercy, and I wasn't someone that deserved mercy. It wasn't as if God said, well, you know, you're a good person and you do good things, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to love you. I'm going to be merciful to you. No, we were all filthy, rotten sinners. And God just just you know, cast the the net far and wide, showing mercy upon all. And 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 we love that, and we know that, and we accept that. But the beatitude challenges us and asks us the essential question: Now, do we live that, and do we practice that? Why? Because the world is filled with nasty little sinners, just like we used to be, and to some degree still are. And they don't need someone to come up to them and wag a finger in their face and point out all their faults. If you're anything like I was before you were a Christian, you're well aware of all your faults. You know, they need someone to be merciful to them. They need someone to reach out to them, to love them, not to judge them. And let me say this before we move on to, you know, hastily through the Beatitudes, that the most merciful thing you can do for someone is to share the gospel with them. I think a lot of times God would look down upon our mercy and determine that it's nothing more than cruelty because we have at our disposal such a rich treasure to impart to the world that we reserve for our private times together rather than freely dispense it upon those that need it. It's coming off the the 10 freeway a little while ago. Um, It was a couple of years ago. And um, there was a man standing uh, right there, as there often is, you know, a homeless person holding up a sign. And his youth lived in the 10 freeway, and, and his sign said three words. It said, hungry, please help. And I saw him, and my heart weighed heavy for him. And, and you know, Jack in the Box isn't far north, so I began to think, well, I'll, I'll share with him my most, my most favorite thing in the world. And then I'll give him a bag of Jumbo Jacks. And that's what I did. You know, you don't waste time with fries. You just go for the glory. And um, so, you know, looking at the man, I I began to think of his sign ordering those Jumbo Jacks. And and there was a time when I hungered. And there was a time when I thirst. And there was a time when all I wanted was for someone to reach out to me and to share something with me that would satisfy me. Um, but, But it was more than a Jumbo Jack that would satiate the hunger deep inside my soul. 
And so I brought that bag down to him and I shared it with him and he was so thankful and so appreciative and it felt so good. And you all know the feeling, no doubt you've all done similar things, but you're humble enough not to be standing up here talking about it, you know? And, and so, it, you know, it, it feels wonderful inside. And, and I felt very good about myself. And I, I, I could have walked away right then, you know? And maybe I should have walked away right then. But you know the, the, the feeling just as I know the feeling. And you feel so good in that moment. But you feel so conflicted in that moment as well. Because you know you want to go one step further. And you know that just as Jesus talking to the woman at the well, oh, you'll drink of these waters. But you'll thirst again. And you have at your disposal something that will quench that thirst. And if there was just an easy way to impart it. And I sat down with the man and I began to talk to him. I began to share Christ with them and, and, and uh, you know, basically my story with them. You know, talking about the woman at the well, talking about the hunger that's common to all men. And, and it's funny, years before Crave, and now I can look back in hindsight and see how it's, it paralleled so so you know wonderfully with what Irwin talks about in that book and, and just how it's natural for us and it's innate in us and it's just part of us and and you know and and he began to curse at me and shout at me and just you know there was so much venom that poured out of him towards me and it became increasingly difficult to show mercy to him and to love him and everything in me just wanted to snatch the bag of Jumbo Jacks and say, you don't deserve this! You don't deserve this wonderful treasure! But I didn't do it, and, and you know, I simply said, God bless you, and, and, and I will pray for you. And I drove away with this fire inside my heart that just burned hot towards that man. And then the voice of God came, as it usually does, to rebuke me. And it said... That was you when I met you. And I still loved you. And I was still merciful towards you. And I think when it comes in terms of mercy, we can all do with a good slap upside our head from God. You know, and God spoke through Nathan the prophet to David the king and said, you are the man when David had forgotten it. And most of you know the story. I mean, David was ready and full of righteous indignation and ready to, to pour out judgment upon people and ready to condemn people. And Nathan said, you are the person. It's you. And you need to look inside yourself and see how greatly God has shown you mercy and realize that to that degree, we should show this world mercy. And as always before, Spurgeon has said it better than I ever could. And let me just read this to you. And he said, A child of God feels that he is imperfect and that he lives with imperfect people. When they act improperly towards him, he feels it. But at the same time, he feels, I've been far worse to my God than they have been to me. So I will let it go. And I recommend you, dear brothers and sisters, always to have one blind eye and one deaf ear. To have always tried, or, or I've always tried to have them, and my blind eye is the best eye I have. My deaf ear is the best ear I have. 
And there is many a speech that you may hear, even from your best friends, that would cause you much grief and produce much ill. So do not listen to it. And they will probably be sorry that they spoke so unkindly if you never mention it. And let the whole thing die. Isn't that hard for us? Just let it die. But if you say something about it and bring it up again and again and fret and worry over it and magnify it and tell somebody else about it and bring half a dozen people into the quarrel, then this is the way family disagreements have been made. Christian churches broken up, the devil magnified, and God dishonored. Oh, do not let it be so with us. But let us feel if there is any offense against us. Blessed are the merciful. And such we mean to be. And so let the words always be heavy upon you. When you hear the voice of God say, that was you when I met you. And to look at the world through those lenses. Let us be merciful because we have been shown great mercy. But now on to purity. In verse 8, it's one of my favorite verses. Be easy for me to to take far more of your time than I want to with this verse, but I'm going to try and resist. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Now let me ask you an important question about this verse, and if you've you know, read it and done your inductive Bible study homework on it, then you can answer it. Now here's the question, when will they see God? When will they see God? Right? You know, when you study the Bible, it's very important to notice what the Bible says. Right? And you have to be, I always, I always say that, you have to be at least that smart to teach a Bible study. It's very important to note what the Bible says. But sometimes it's equally as important to note what the Bible does not say. Right? And here, it doesn't say when they'll see God. And so many assume that it simply means that when we die, you know, you're pure in heart, you'll die, you'll see God. And they're not right in assuming that. They're not, uh, I mean, they're, they're not wrong in assuming that. They're not wrong in saying that. And certainly that's true. When you die, you'll see God. But, but I, I think that there's, there's more than that there. And it can go beyond that, that the pure in heart will see God in their life. You know, you're walking with him, you're keeping close to them, you'll see him at work in your life, you'll see a move in your midst, but as long as it's a promise, you can recognize here as you study the scripture that it's a conditional promise. It's a conditional promise made only to the pure of heart. So if you're filling your life with filth, you didn't lose your salvation, you don't misunderstand me, but you're definitely obstructing your vision. And it's not going to be so easy to see God in that case. You know, to my, to my great shame, uh, before I took out the lease on the, on the Corolla, I had a 95 Buick Regal, and I went almost a year without washing that car. Um, and it's just something about having an, an ugly car that, <laughs> that makes you not want to gussy it up and present it to the world by washing it. And, and so I, just, I didn't care for it, and, and I just let it go. I, you know, it, it, was, it was just a sloppy, disgusting mess. And, and after almost a year of not washing the car, I remember one day getting in it, and I can't, 
I can't remember there being anything special about the day, if it was a stormy day or if it was, you know, a foggy day. But I remember on that particular day looking through the windshield and realizing that I could hardly see out of it. <laughs> that there was so much dirt and dust and grime built up on that windshield that I couldn't see through it. And maybe if I had taken the time to just clean it, I wouldn't have hit the curb as I was backing out, but I didn't, so I did. And so many say, well, why am I slipping up so much? Well, why has Christianity become so difficult for me? Well, why can't I see Jesus move in my life and it seems as if he doesn't have his hand upon me and he's not doing anything with me? And, and your answer could be simply this simple. You haven't lost your salvation, but something is definitely obstructing your vision. This is blessed are the pure of heart. You need to wash yourself with the word of God. To come before him and be cleansed by him. And, and you know, I think so often Christians have this uh, idea that it's a one-time thing that you come before God and you repent and you're good to go. And Jesus says to Peter the day that he washes his feet, you're already clean, Peter. It's just your feet that need a little washing. Because we get dusty out in the world. We get dirty out in the world. And we need to come before him continually and be washed by him, be renewed by him. And he says, when you do that, you'll see me. It'll be easy for you to follow me. I mean, if I could see you, I can follow you. And it works in the physical world. Why can't it work in the spiritual world? And we don't have to make it any more complicated than it is in the physical world. I mean, if you, if you take away all the fog, if you take away all the dirt, if you take away all the weather and all the, all the things that we're throwing in our atmosphere and, and it's just, just nothing is left but perfect clarity, I can see you, I can follow you, I can stick close beside you, and I won't miss anything that you do. If you, if you, you turn a corner, I can follow you around that corner, and I won't lose sight of you. And I often wonder, maybe it's a strange thing to wonder, how many things I've missed simply because of my impure heart. A wonderful, you know, bounty of moral beauties that have slipped past me because there's been something obstructing me. You know, and there's not much time. Here in the present, and the present is ever passing. And soon we're going to, you know, be at a, a strict deficit of opportunities to appreciate all the beauty in this world of seeing God in this world and what he would do in this world. And blessed are the pure in heart. You'll see him in all of it. I've listed down three things. You can mark it down. You'll be able to see God in nature. For some of you tree huggers maybe this strikes a chord you, you can you can look at the the beauty of the world around you and you're incredibly touched and ministered to by god's spirit if you're anything like me then then you look at the beauty of the world around you and you just have an asthma attack so you you prefer to stay indoors and and read a book on creation but either way you'll be able to see god in nature and appreciate the the complexity of it Appreciate the beauty of it, because after all, God created all of it. 
You'll be able to see God in Scripture. And when you come before him with a pure heart, as Titus chapter 3 says, washed by his spirit, you begin to see his mysteries unfold on every page. And it's exciting. It's, it's not dull and boring. And, and so many people, maybe when they were first a child of God, they had this insatiable appetite for scripture. And where has it gone? And maybe it has gone. Well, blessed are the pure in heart. They will see God, and you'll be able to see him in Scripture anew. And you come before him, and you're washed by him. You'll see God in his church. If I was going to list three, because I don't, want to list, I don't want to list too many, these are the three that I would pick. You'd see God in his church. You know, two people can leave the same service having experienced two completely different things. One will walk out and say, oh, that was, that was so boring. And the music was dull. And the preaching was just, ugh, it was long. And the people were so standoffish and the coffee was cold. And another person leaves having seen God there. And then they, they go, God was in the music. And, and God was in the study. And God was in the fellowship. And I saw God in all of it. And who cares about the coffee? And they leave excited about him and filled with him. And the king was high and lifted up. And I saw him. And I saw him. And, you, and you'll see him in all these things. You'll see him in the world. You'll see him in his word. You'll see him in his church. And it'll all be in a completely new light. A glorious thing to behold. When you look at it through purified eyes, sanctified by his spirit. So blessed are the pure in heart. They will see God. But now, blessed are the peacemakers. They will be called sons of God. Now the word peacemaker here, that at the root of this word is the Greek uh, uh, word to be bonded together. Is it bonded together or bound together? Bonded? That's what I think. Some people might say bound. I'll flip-flop 50-50. Everyone will be happy. So to be bonded together, to be bound together. Jesus said that this is when the world will look on and what will they say? Well, that is a child of God, right? I mean, you can, you can read it again. Maybe I didn't read it dramatically enough. Blessed are the peacemakers. They will be called sons of God. This is when the world's going to look on and they're going to say, well, that's a son of God. This is what it looks like to be a son of God to the world. This is what Jesus said, that, that this is what it should look like. That, that we're bound together. We're stuck together. We're not dividing one another. We're not contentious with one another. We're not slandering one another. We're just together. We're with one another. You know, there's, there's nothing. And it's amazing. I thought it was only like this in the high school group. You know, that you would hear someone off in a corner saying something like, oh, look at her. Oh, she, oh, she looks fat today in that, doesn't she? You know, somebody else would be off in another corner and they'd be saying, oh, oh she, she smiled at me. Who does she think she is? She's such a phony. Oh, it's just in the high school group, isn't it? 
And then I turned 18 and went to the adult service and saw just as much of it there as ever was in the high school group and maybe a little bit more. Oh, I've heard about him. Oh, you know him? He's got a drinking problem. What? And that's said in church. And that's shared with people in church. And the slander that comes out of the mouths of people at church, and it ought not be, heaven forbid. There shouldn't be people cutting down one another here. There shouldn't be people talking like that about each other here, but that's what it often turns into. Our witness to the world should be one of love. This is what Jesus said in John chapter 13. He said, this is how you'll know, they'll know you are my disciples. This is how they, the world, will know that you, the Christians, are my, Jesus, disciples. When? When you love one another. That's what it's going to look like. When you're bonded together. They say, no, I only mentioned that, you know, she was a phony so that we can pray for her. You're a hypocrite. <laughs> Stop doing that. You know, it's like that, that doesn't belong in the church. How we just need to, need to cut that out because it's a terrible testimony of Christianity. And, and, you know, when it's not about that, when we're just united with one another, Jesus says this is what the church should look like. This is what it's always been about. I mean, you know, my dad still tells the story. My dad's, a, uh, you know, a, a heathen still to this day. Tells, still tells the story of the one church that he went to where everyone was just nice to each other. And I remember hearing that story as a kid, being an unbeliever myself, and my dad saying that this was the closest he ever came to being a Christian. And it's so surprising to me, now after being a Christian for 10 years, that in all of my dad's church experience, there was only one church that he ever went to where the people were actually just nice to each other. It's a terrible thing to consider, that this is the way that we're representing Christ to the world. When he says that this is the mark of a child of God, a son of God, a daughter of God, that it should be the banner of being this peacemaker, being bonded together. Before we get too carried away and caught up, I want to talk about the peacemaker a little bit. Because the peacemaker is, uh, among other things, a human. I mean, he's you and I. And as a human, we're all prone to emotions. And it's not wrong to have emotions. You can have emotions and not sin. Okay? And Jesus was angry. He didn't sin. There was a righteous anger in him. You know, there was an anger that burned for the glory of God within him. Most of the time we get angry, it's because we're slighted personally or it's because we feel like we deserve something that we probably don't. You can have emotions without sin. And, and, and the peacemaker, he's, he's like all of us. He has a job. And he might be mistreated at that job. But he doesn't slander anybody at that job. If he has friends, those friends might take advantage of him. They might be rude to him or her. They might be disrespectful. But he's not going to retaliate against them. This is what it means to be a peacemaker. And it's easy to say, well, we shall be united with one another. 
and just be peaceable with one another. But the reality of it is, is that oftentimes that's a one-sided relationship. And you being the peacemaker are going to have to put up with a lot from people that are simply not peaceable. You know, from people that are just rude and disrespectful. And some would say that it actually, and it actually did turn into a bit of a disagreement at one of our home fellowships, that, that, you know, well, what's the extent of this? Well, how far do you go with this? Well, you shouldn't just be a doormat for the world. You can't just let people walk all over you and just be like, yay, peace, I love you still, you're my brother, you're my sister. You know, and just let people slap you around and treat you like garbage. There has to be a line that you draw on the sand, and where is it, and what is it? Listen, you're all very intelligent people, and, you know, I don't want to leave here with uh, uh, a lot of tears and, and anger, as happened with that last event that I talked about this. So I'll simply say that Christ sought peace with all men at great personal cost to himself. And if there's something that's worth writing down, that might be it. Christ sought peace with all men at great personal cost to himself. Peacemaker is a human. Humans have emotions. Let this be the filter for all of your emotions. You can pour them through this. Now, Christ wants peace, so he's going to take it upon himself. And there are people, till the day they die, that will be disrespecting him, slandering him, abusing him, and saying nothing kind about him, and yet he is always before them, offering peace to them. Now, where's the line? Are you supposed to go home and be abused and say, well, Michael told me to be a peacemaker, so I'm just going to take it, you know, and Christ did it. I can't tell you where the line is. Sometimes this is what it takes to be a peacemaker, and this is what I can tell you. It takes sacrifice. And if there's one word that you can plug into this section of scripture, that's going to be the one. Because sometimes to, for there to be peace, there's a sacrifice that's necessary. It's going to be a sacrifice of self, a sacrifice of our rights, a sacrifice of what we feel entitled to, a sacrifice of what we feel like we deserve. But after all, wasn't God himself incarnate entitled to and deserving of much more than we? And who do we really think we are after all? There's going to be a sacrifice of all these things simply so that the other party might have a chance at peace. Because that's what it's all about. Peace with God and peace with man at the cost of your own sacrifice. Whatever that might mean to you. And there's a reason why this one is so near the end of the list of Beatitudes on this ladder of sanctification because they're becoming more challenging, aren't they? It's becoming more unnatural and uncomfortable for us to think, well, this is what it's going to mean 
to be called a child of God, to identify yourself with God in a sacrifice of your rights and entitlements. What you think you deserve in this world, how you think you should be treated in this world, to lay it aside so that that person can experience peace with God and so that there can be peace in the body of Christ. It's a terrible thing to consider. <laughs> but Jesus says, you'll be blessed if you take this step up the ladder. But there's still one more to go. And if that one was hard, then this one has to be understandably harder as we're drawing closer to Christ's character. And in verse 10, we read, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He says, rejoice and be glad. You know, this word means to jump for joy, literally in the Greek. It says, jump for joy. There's a big party going on. Everyone's dancing. And someone comes into the room and says, why are you dancing? Why are you so happy? And, and you say, because I'm being persecuted. It's completely unnatural. It's absurd to think about when you get right down to it. You know, why are you so happy? It's like, yeah, it's, it's a party when you're persecuted. When people insult you and slander you and, and mistreat you. It's a time to celebrate. Because as, we, because as we've already seen formally, that this is in pure identification with, 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 with what Christ went through. And this is when you draw dramatically close to him. You're walking in line with them and your lives are in sync and, and you're going through exactly what he went through for the same reasons that he went through it. All right, you're not being persecuted. You're not being insulted because you're a rude, mean person in the world. You're not being insulted because you deserve to be insulted for whatever way you, you might want to take that. You're being insulted for righteousness sake, just as Christ was being insulted. And he says, well, well, what's your great reward for your life, right? For, for you living for God. What's your great reward in this world for you uh, being so peaceful to people and always trying to bring people together? What's your great reward for showing mercy to them and reaching out to them? It's being insulted by them. It's being hated by them. He says, they will hate you, but God will reward you. Your inheritance upon this earth ought to be, to some degree, an inheritance of malice. And your inheritance in heaven ought to be, to a greater proportion, an inheritance of glory. He says that this is the way it's always been. If you're living for me, if you're serving me, you're going to be mistreated in this world. It was the same for the prophets. You know, take a look at Hebrews chapter 11. Read the story of the prophets. These weren't guys that 
that lived and died in fields of daisies, skipping around, you know, making little flowery crowns for themselves. I mean, these were, these were guys that were sawn in half. And they were ran out of town, cast into the fiery furnace, into the lion's den, into prison. They were beaten, stoned, whipped, skinned, crucified. And so the question becomes, do you think any of these men are up in heaven saying, wow, I really wish I'd made some different decisions down there on earth. Maybe if I just kept my mouth shut, none of this would have ever happened. Do you think that thought ever enters into their mind? No. Great is their reward in heaven. And they saw past the temporal veil of this world and said that there's something so much more worthwhile that I could be living for. There's something so much more worthwhile that I could be investing my days in. That this doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you insult me. It doesn't matter if you hate me. It doesn't matter how you treat me. All that I would live for God's glory. Let me tell you, on earth, the natural result of going against the grain, you've all taken a physics course, you're going to generate friction. If you're pushing against the pull of the world, friction should be the natural result of it. And that's exactly what Christ has told us to do. And you can look after these, uh, th- these nine points and principles of blessings as we've gone down the path of sanctification, that each one of them makes you more of an alien on this planet. Each one of them makes you more absurd to the people of this planet. And if you're living this way, the, the way that Christ lived on this planet, you will be generating friction. I used to share this in high school, and it's very common for, for youth pastors to share this. I was a youth leader. For youth leaders to share this in their high school groups. And, and, you, know, and, and you know, parents look on and they say, well, that's good. That's a cute little high school lesson. You should be generating frictions in your high school. You should be going against the grain in your high school. And then we get out of high school and we go into the real world. And let me tell you, you have so many more opportunities to do what you didn't do in high school in the real world which is to generate friction. And people just go on and they get on with their lives and they seek more and more to disappear in the world, to be invisible to the world, to just blend in with the world and not to generate friction in the world. And Jesus says, you're missing this great blessing. You're missing out on it. You know, I thought, and, and, and you know, maybe I was you know, fed a bill of good when I was in high school by my old preachers. When they said, this is, this is the hardest time to be a Christian in high school. And you're going to get out of high school and you're not going to be surrounded by all these people that, that are constantly talking to you and, and always you know, discussing things with you and all this. And, and then I got to high school or got to college and, and my first week at Chafee, which I spent three years in that, in that prison. And, and, you know, and, and my pastor in anthropology, Mr. Fong, and said, if you're a Christian today, stand to your feet and be ridiculed. And I, like the lone sheep led to the slaughter, stood up. And he tore into me with evolution and, and with all of his anthropological studies and research and everything he's done to earn his PhD and I'm sitting there, person 18, just graduated from high school and how could I possibly stand up against the onslaught of an intellect like him? But I stood up anyways. Why? Because I am a Christian. And he said, if you're a Christian, stand up. 
and outside the class an hour later, after I was thoroughly abused and humiliated, came up to me about 10 other Christians and said, I'm a Christian too, and I'm glad you stood. And I said, if you are a Christian, you should have stood too. And they said, oh, that's ridiculous. He does this every semester. And it's a shame that this is the way we are in our adult years. Now having so much more information, so much more knowledge, so much more growth and maturity that we can stand up. And so often we don't because we're trying to be accepted by all these people that are passing away while we guard our secret. He says, you'll be blessed if you do it. If you just put yourself out there, if you reach out to these people who desperately need to hear of me, you'll be blessed immensely by me. You're not going to be up in heaven one day and say, oh, well, you know, I, maybe I should have just been quiet and maybe, you know, it would have been a little bit easier for me down there and all this and all that. No, you'll be up there with the saints of old saying, I'm glad for every time I opened my mouth and let it out of me, the glorious gospel that was within me. I'm being incredibly blessed. So all these nine blessings in the nine Beatitudes to draw us into what is essentially a prescription for peace that passes all understanding. It's a, it's a prescription for what also came out of my first semester in Chafee in a communications course called Authentic Happiness. And you're not going to find it in a communications course called Authentic Happiness. You're going to find it in the scripture that offers authentic happiness. And it's going to take you down these nine essential steps to first realize you're a sinner to second, mourn that sad spiritual state. Third, submit to your Savior. Fourth, hunger and thirst for righteousness, to feast upon him. And the more you do, the more you'll be conformed into the image of him as you begin to fifth, show mercy as you've been shown mercy. Sixth, you're purified so that you can see clearly. Seventh, you're bonded together with other believers you made into a peacemaker in eighth and ninth these two essential truths of being persecuted for righteousness sake as you're rejected by this world system and Jesus says and if this is the way you live how happy you'll be how happy you'll be. And I had to end this way because I see that, that, that for some this kind of a message bucks against our interpretation of mature Christianity. That mature Christianity is, is a somber, serious, almost stoic believer. That that's the one that we would look at and we would say, now that man is mature. The man is saintly, never seen a smile come upon his face. Oh, what a glorious saint of God. And let me say that the Bible knows nothing of a sad, serious, and always stoic saint. I mean, you could write him down. Paul writes, 
Romans chapter 4, verse 7. Happy are those whose sins are forgiven. David writes, Psalm 144, verse 15. Happy are those whose God is the Lord. If you know the Lord, if you're in a right relationship with the Lord, the natural result of that should be happiness. It should be this joy that's just welling up inside of you and overflowing from you. And, and listen, we've already talked about the peacemaker and defined him as a human. So I'm not saying that you have to be dishonest to your own emotions. If your mom dies, you know, you shouldn't be giddy at the funeral because a Christian should always be happy, you know? But there's this stigma upon the church today that's altogether unbiblical, that a serious saint needs to look like he just sucked on a lemon, you know? That to be a mature Christian, you have to look like you just found out that Santa Claus isn't real. And it's not biblical. It's not truthful. It's not, Chris just found out for the first time, I'm sorry. It's, you know, to have this really heavy look on your face all the time. And, and that's not what this is about. Jesus begins his most famous sermon in all of scripture by saying that you should be happy. If you're in a right relationship with me, if you're walking with me, Jesus would say that day, the natural response of it, it you, you should be blessed beyond belief. And it's an interesting choice in words. When he chose the word blessed. It's in the Greek. It was a word that was common to the Greeks. And, but it was a word that, that, that described the kind of joy that could only be felt by a God that it wasn't something that was ever a possibility for a man. And Jesus takes all that tradition and turns it on and pulls this word right out and applies it to people and says, this kind of joy, the joy of God himself, can be yours when it's imparted by God himself to those that know him, that are walking with him, and that are living a life according to his precepts and principles in scripture. So the story of sanctification the story of your salvation and nine glorious little truths. Let's go ahead and end with a word of prayer. Lord, I thank you for your word that we've been able to consider this night. And thank you, Lord, for the fact that, that you, you draw us in and call us to a deeper relationship with you, one that's more uh, in line with the character of you that we see in Scripture, one that's going to cost us a sacrifice, one that might bring upon us maybe a world that doesn't like us. I pray, Lord, that, you know, at all the crossroads that we face in our life, that we would see you and follow you and make those decisions along with you so that we can just correctly represent you to this world because they don't need to see us. They just really need to see you. So Lord, I praise you for this awesome opportunity we have to represent you. I pray, Lord, that we would do it just as you've called us to do it. Lord, that we would be honest and merciful, that we would be peaceable Lord, for all of us, that we would just be humble as we serve you. And 
and live for our Savior. So, Lord, I thank you once again in your name. Amen.